Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Here we go, round two, week number two. Talking about bad theology. So let's talk a little bit about it. But first, let's, uh, let's talk to God before we do that. Let's pray together, please. Pray with me. God, we thank you for the chance that we have to study not just your word, but to be good students of our culture. We know that we have been warned in your word there's going to be a, a lot of bad theology that we need to look out for. We need to understand. We need to have a, uh, a mind that is discerning, one that has at least enough working knowledge of what people believe to have a real logical response, a cogent response to what is being taught. They certainly have many views about Christ, about your son, about who you are. And God, we just pray this whole series would be super helpful for us to lay a groundwork in a lot of different areas of world religions and Christian cults that would help us to navigate the waters of those who come saying something very different than what your word says about who your son is. So Help us, God, as we continue tonight and looking at something that's so important, uh, not just in our world, but even in our Bibles. So help us through this discussion of Judaism now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Judaism week two. Hopefully you got a worksheet. And let's just dive in. Judaism in the world today. Last week we looked at world population compared to Islam. Let's just revisit that number. 7.4 billion people. Now compare that to how many people claim Judaism. 15 million. That's a very small number. As a matter of fact, you do the percentage, that's only 2% of our entire world's population. Uh, you take a third largest religion like Hinduism, I mean, that's 1.1 billion. We put that on the list third after Christianity and Islam last week. We said that was 15%. Now, I understand that Judaism is such a small number of people in the world, but you have to understand as you look all around us in everyday interaction with the news and the media and just... The, the geopolitical tensions in the world that if you don't understand Judaism, you're not going to understand what's going on in our world. For instance, if you put in the word Israel into the news feed, uh, look at that number there. If you can read it, it's tiny, but 24 million hits on the news feed that I just put up this afternoon to try and see how many how many times I would get a hit on, on Israel. You, you type in Hinduism, uh, you'll have 127,000. So I didn't do the math on that. You math majors can give me the percentage there. But that, I mean, it may be a small number in our world, uh, but to understand what's going on in Israel, particularly with the people of Israel and with Judaism, you, you must understand uh, this. And that's why I put it second on the list uh, for a number of reasons. But that's one, one reason we need to cover it real soon in our study. And it is very, very important. Now, think about it in America. I said the U.S. population last week was 318 million approximately. Claiming Christianity, which is by far the biggest in our country, we said was 207 million. That's 65%. They just give some lip service to saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. Uh, whatever that means, uh, as we'll look at uh, next week. Claiming Judaism is 5 million, that's 2%, and Islam, 3 million, that's 1%. So we look at how that shifts from the world's percentages to our the United States. I mean, this is the second biggest section of religious people in our country. It may be a distant second to Christianity, but it's important for us to understand it. We talk about Islam, it's important to know because it's growing so quickly. Islam is growing much more quickly than Judaism, but still, if you walk around and poll people in terms of their religion, it may be a small number, but it is the second uh, largest in our country. 
Israel and the Israelites in your Bible, of course, one of the reasons we uh, are familiar and, and feel somewhat comfortable, I suppose, talking about Israel and Israelites, because we've grown up, if you've grown up in the church, learning all about them. Israel, you might remember, is Jacob's nickname, the nickname that God gave Jacob. It was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now, of course, what we're concerned about in the Bible is, are you a descendant of Abraham? Abraham, the father of faith. Go all the way back to Genesis 12. There we have a very important relationship that God sets up with Abraham, codifies a covenant, chapter 15. We see it again, chapter 21. It's very important that we understand that when we talk about Israel in the Bible, though we're talking about his grandson's name, it represents, of course, all of the descendants of Abraham. If you just look for the word Israel in your Bible, you do a little Logos search on that, you'll have 2,604 references to Israel or Israels as a, as a possessive, as a nas- national title. So you can't read the Bible without seeing Israel on every page, literally. And if you throw in the nicknames for Israel, whether it's Ephraim or Jacob, there's a lot of different names that we might have, uh, Judah representing the southern tribes, you're going to come up with over 4,000 references to the nation of Israel. So you can't read your Bible without seeing this everywhere. And then you start realizing what the Bible has to say about Israel and the descendants of Abraham. And you recognize there's a very special concern that God has for these people. I, I, I assume it's a familiar passage to you, but Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, you are, a, you are a people holy. Of course, that means set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people, to be a group, to be a nation for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, picked you out to be my people. That we have in 1440 B.C. being written by Moses in Deuteronomy after we've had Moses chosen about four, five, six hundred years earlier. We have this growing group of descendants of Abraham that are so important to God. Now, of course, a lot of people say, well, yeah, but the church has kind of gotten in the way and taken the place of that. Well, notice a passage like this in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 37. Thus says the Lord. See if this can't be any more emphatic. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Okay, that's you know the business card uh, title here. The Lord of hosts is his name. I mean, okay, you get the sense God's about to say something very important that you take him as an absolute authority on, as though you wouldn't. But there is an emphasis that God gives. Now he's going to give you his word. If the fixed order departs from before me, he's just talked about the sun for the day, stars and moon for, for the nighttime. If those things go away from you, well, then the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Then I'm done with them. That's a rhetorical way of saying I won't be done with them. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done declares the Lord. Now, one of the real problems in reading through the prophets, particularly the prophet Jeremiah, is they're very concerned about what's going to happen to the future of Israel because God was using Babylon to punish them. And so they were saying, well, we've sinned real bad, so I guess it's over for us. And so Jeremiah had a very important ministry, as did the other prophets there at the end of the period of Judah in the south. 
to try and encourage them as Babylon comes and, and conquers Jerusalem. God's not done with you. And you couldn't say it any more emphatically than this. God creates the order of the universe. He set it up. And until all that goes away, well, then we're not done with the nation of Israel. See it again. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundation of the earth below can be explored, then I'll cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. In other words, I'm not going to do it. So that's an important place for us to start. You cannot read the Bible without a very prominent place for Israel. Uh, So much so that a lot of people like to say, well, the church now has replaced Israel. More on that later, but the answer would be seemingly, no, that's not the case. And we'll talk about that a little bit more without turning it into a Bible study on eschatology. The question that we have to ask is, is Judaism, as we're going to talk about it tonight, are we talking about a nationality or a religion? Because you seem to be saying in the passage you just quoted in Jeremiah 31, we're talking about the descendants of Israel or the descendants of Abraham. So is this a nation? Is this political? Is this ethnic? Is this cultural? Uh, Is this religion? What, What is this? Well, in the Bible, you need to make some observations going all the way back to the beginning when you had Israel leaving the exodus under the, uh, the leadership of Moses. You had them there in slavery in Egypt, of course. They're going to go through the desert. Uh, they're going to take a very long detour and, and head into the promised land. Exodus chapter 12, just when they're leaving, he says, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. So that's a big number of people. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock and both flocks and herds. So you got all these people, but then there, here's this phrase, the mixed multitude. Here's a comment about mixed ethnicities that have gone out from Egypt. Now you might want to think that after the 10 plagues, you might want to sign up to leave with Israel, thinking God seems to be on their side. So you can imagine, you've got a lot of people here that are not biologically descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and they are all in this group with Israel. Now, later in the passage, how many verses is that? 10 10 verses later. He says, now if a stranger, that's a foreigner, shall sojourn with you, he's going to travel with you through the desert to the promised land, and would keep the Passover to the Lord, which of course is their monumental you know, connection that they were making. That's what he explained in the beginning of this chapter, the Passover, that was to celebrate forever as a sign that God had taken them out of Egypt. Well, then let all his males, right, all the males in his group be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native in the land. Okay, so I'm an Egyptian, I want to go, and, and I'm coming. I may just be going through one of the nomadic tribes that you're coming out. I, I hear all about, I want to join this group. And so I, I'm going to join, I'm going to celebrate the Passover, but i gotta, I got to circumcise my children, which of course in the, I'm going to be now like you. There's going to be uh, one law, as it says, there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger, for the one who's a descendant of Abraham and one that's not, for the one who sojourns among you. So in the Bible, you see this is not just a national, ethnic, biological identity. You could have the mixed multitude. You could have sojourners. You could have foreigners. Those are all the words used in Exodus 12 to join us as long as they're willing to connect and submit to the ceremonies and the, and the covenant signs and be a part of who we are. We often call these proselytes. They become part of the people of Israel. In the New Testament, now you need to understand the context for this passage in Romans chapter 2. He's talking historically about the Jews. 
Right? He's not recommending circumcision in the new covenant, but he's saying, now think about it. Historically, you Israelites, you see your sign of the covenant here in your male circumcision, and you think that, that, that makes you okay with God, and you're good, and you're in favor with him. He says, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. In some ways, that, that is like baptism in that if, if you get baptized as a Christian and you're doing what the Bible says, well, there's value in that. There's value in that you're obeying God and it's a good thing and God accepts that as an act of worship. But if you break the law, if you're not interested in keeping the law, well, then your signs, they don't matter. Your circumcision becomes uncircumcision from God's perspective, right? It's not, you didn't, it's like, not like you obeyed me. You put on a symbol and a sign, but you're not being faithful to me. Then he says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Well, it is, but it's not really what matters to God. What matters is that you do the outward signs with an inward devotion. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. I want God's approval, not just the signs that make people think I'm part of the group. I want to have the signs and the heart that are in sync. So you have a picture here interestingly enough, about the Spirit's connection with the people of God in the Old Testament because he's referring historically. He's about to talk about circumcision all throughout the New Testament. is saying it doesn't matter anymore. But historically, it did matter if your heart was right before God and you did it as an act of worship. You did it as an act of obedience with the rest of your portfolio of saying, I'm submissive to God and I'm willing to do what he says. The Spirit then makes you right before God. So you can start to see now, I can have people in several different categories that would be called Jewish, if you will, in the Old Testament. And, and, and so it's not a whole lot different than it is today. So let's look at it this way. Judaism, a nationality or a religion. Let's think through this today. I'm going to forward this and this will tie together everything that we're thinking of in the Bible. And hopefully you, you, you'll see this today. Today, there are, I guess you go to ancestry.com and send them your blood swab or whatever you do. You can find this out. Are you a descendant of Abraham? Let's just call them biological Jews. There are people that are biologically Jewish. They can trace their ancestry, at least as best as we can, we can trace their ancestry to this pool of people that we genetically identify as being Jewish, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So those are the biological Jews. Okay? Now, within biological Judaism, if you can see these concentric circles, there are those that are devoted to the God of Abraham. Now, in the Old Testament... When there was no added requirement of trusting in Christ because Christ had not yet arrived, you had that group as described in, in, in uh, Romans chapter 2 as being those that the Spirit of God circumcises their heart, not just their externals. They're observant. They observe the rules. And you can think today, though it's very different, you've got descendants of Abraham all over the place, and you've got then people that are observing the things that Judaism teaches, and they want to do what Ju Judaism says they're interested in that. Great. Well, just like in Exodus chapter 12, there are some that say, I want to be devoted to that God of Abraham too. Let's call these the religious Jewish proselytes. I've joined your team. I've converted. What have I converted to? I've converted to being devoted to the God of Abraham, and I'm willing to do whatever it is that this religion requires of me because I'm devoted to following your God. That is, much like in the Old Testament, the kind of person you might call a, a proselyte. But you want to distinguish them between just a proselyte that we're about to now put on the screen from the proselyte who is devoted religiously. There are then Gentiles today, many today, that are devoted to the culture of Abraham's descendants. They like the culture. Let's just call those throughout the rest of the night the cultural Jewish proselytes. 
Now, you can see this in the Old Testament as well. You can imagine that people, maybe to save their own skin, left with the Israelites through the desert under Moses, but they were not, as we saw, actually, there were a lot of them that rebelled against Moses. They were not in their heart committed to obey the law and God's leader, in this case, Moses. They weren't willing to do that, but they did want to follow along. They did want to you know, go through the customs. They had a baby. They want to get their baby circumcised. They wanted to have the Passover meal when it was the right time of the year, but they weren't in their hearts submitted to God. Their prayer life was non-existent. Their devotion to him, their concern about the secret obedience that you couldn't see, not interested in that. Well, that's similar today. There's a lot of people, and I could name all kinds of people from millions. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Barry Manilow, Bette Midler, Ellenson, the Oracle guy. I mean, there's a million different people that will say this. I'm Jewish, but you have to figure out, oh, I'm Jewish. You have to figure out where do you fall religious customs, and I want to be right with the God of Judaism. They may say, well, I'm Jewish, but, you know, I'm, a, I'm Italian or I'm some Indo-European, Caucasian or whatever, but I, I, I want to be devoted to the, They certainly like the customs and they get involved in that. We're going to learn a lot more about them. I don't know. All right. Cultural Jewish proselytes. Religious Jewish proselytes, observant Jews, biological Jews. There's some four categories that may help us. Now, I want to talk about Judaism as religion. Now, if you think about that, I'm looking at these two circles now, the devoted to the God of Abraham and Gentiles that are devoted to the God of Abraham. These are the foreigners, but they are observant. First category. There's a category that we would call Orthodox Jews. Orthodox Jews. Now, we only got a little bit of time together on each of these religions, we could get into a variety of sub-distinctions in these, just like you can in almost any group. But there are ultra-Orthodox, there are moderately Orthodox, there's Orthodox Hasidic Jews that wear the black hats and the black clothes. Uh, There's all kinds of varieties of this, Orthodox Jews. Varies from ultra-Orthodox to modern Orthodox, which, by the way, the Hasidic Jews try to trace their origins all the way back to the 2nd and 3rd century B.C. with the intertestamental period and the revolt uh, with the Maccabees against the Hellenistic pressures of, of the Greeks trying to get them to be culturally Greek, to Hellenize them. We even see that show up in the New Testament uh, in the early pages of Acts. But um, they wear black because they're mourning. They'll tell you they're mourning the destruction of the temple. Um, so much of what we'll talk about will really get back to that in their mindset, the importance of the temple. They mourn that. Let's talk about authority. Because we need to think through if we're going to interact with or understand Orthodox Judaism. Orthodox, by the way, you know what that word means, right? Straight. If you go to the orthopedic surgeon and try to straighten things out, orthopedic straight means it's, it's supposed to be right. It's supposed to be correct, correct doctrine. Uh, they're the kind that I want to deal with in any religion, the people that take their religion seriously. And, of course, if you think about what's your authority, well, most Jews are going to tell you my authority is the, is the, is the Torah. It's the law of Moses. The Torah is the books of of, of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah. We can talk about the writings and how they fit into that. The, the, the law and the prophets depend on what kind of weight they give to the various parts of the Old Testament, but everyone's going to give adherence to the, to the Torah, to the law. If you examine Orthodox Judaism, you're going to find there's a lot of talk about the oral law, which is no longer oral, but they believe that they're tracing back their customs and beliefs about how to uh, into codification or into some kind of writing uh, at, at a later date. And I'll give you three categories where these oral laws, they say, are codified. The first one, you've probably heard this word, the Mishnah. The Mishnah. This is the earliest collection 
of writings that we have that claims to be the oral laws, ordinances, rules, codes relating to the Torah and how it ought to be carried out, which can date itself all the way back. This is very important after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD that we had a lot of the instructions and codes as to how to live out Orthodox Judaism without the priesthood and without the uh, practice of, of the temple. So you have all kinds of, of codes. If you read through the Mishnah, um, like a lot of the Jewish writings, about every aspect of life uh, in terms of, of this activity or that on the Sabbath or what would make you clean or unclean depending on what kinds of utensils touch what kinds of foods. There's just so many interesting things in the Mishnah that go back to the earliest period. And, and it is tiny compared to the next body, which is, without getting into too much detail, there's two different bodies of, of, of writings. One they call the Jerusalem Talmud, or the old school guys used to call it the Palestinian Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. Together, though, this is gigantic. It's a 2.5 million word set of codes a multi, uh, that dates all the way back to around 400, if you're talking about the Palestinian or, or Jerusalem Talmud, to about on everything that you would find in the Mishnah times 10. The Mishnah is a fraction and, and, and Jerusalem Palestinian Talmud. It addresses everything. As a matter of fact, when you hear preachers get up and they give you those illustrations about, you know, the, the really funny and really interesting and really detailed, I mean, they're deriving this from, from the Talmud because it gets into life and doctrinal theology, how to grasp some of these difficulties in Judaistic theology. So an ultra-Orthodox Jew uh, and a modern, to some extent, uh, Orthodox Jew is going to try and somehow say it in the Torah, and then if it's rightly explained in the, in the Talmud and in the mirror, and, and, that's the, and, and they give that a lot of weight as well. Through the uh, Hebrew Bible, uh, all the Hebrew Bible, but especially the Torah, with a lot of, of detailed um, commentary. Matter of fact, and we got Wi-Fi here. If you, if you Google some of these things, you can see the beautiful pictures. I mean, Hebrew is a beautiful language. It's a beautiful looking language, penmanship and calligraphy that was used to, to write in, in Hebrew, but the way that they laid out the pages, for instance, of the Midrash, you know, gives you these concentric, of course, is the writings of the Old Testament scripture. Now, I wish I could give you some free things on Lagos this week, but I couldn't find any for you. But if you are, uh, the Mishnah, Yale University Press, and just reading through some of the interesting things that go all the way back to the second, uh, third century AD that describe how to live out your life in this world by trying to be observant to the Torah. 31 bucks. Now, I told you the Talmud is gigantic, right? So that's not going to be cheap, but it is available in Lagos if you want it. It's $280. The Babylonian Jerusalem Talmud, it's 50 volumes, but, but it's great because it's searchable. And I assume a lot of the pastors here have it. I have it. So you can, uh, if you need to look something up in the Talmud, I, I'd be real slow going if it wasn't. Um, the Midrash is also available on Lagos. Uh, it's about 132 bucks, and it is... Um, in a three-volume set. And the Mishnah's got kind of wiggly boundaries in terms of what is considered to go in this, but it's all there. And this one's on sale. So and if you have endless money and you're interested in Judaistic studies, uh, those are really the three places you go to find out authoritative writings. So you got the Mishnah, the Talmud, and the Midrash. Judaism as a religion. We'll get back to more orthodox things as we move through the night, but let's talk about, the, let's talk about reform Judaism. And I say reform, and if you want to be in the know when you talk to Jews, don't call it reformed, because it's not reformed, that's Christianity. And we talk about reformed theology with an ED, 
uh, they don't speak in those terms. It's not Reformed Judaism. It's Reformed Judaism, even though it's adjectival. They, that's the, how they describe it. So what is Reformed Judaism? Well, it's primarily what we've got in America here, a lot of it at least. Theologically liberal. And by liberal, the way they like to define it, and I think most people like to define and could define most liberalism this way, is you're really going to appeal to the autonomy of the person and my own conscience over and against any written codes and laws. So you can see right there what you've got. <laughs> like a lot of people that you meet that say they're Christians, and then you say, well, then why don't you go to church? Because the Bible says, and they go, well, you know, I don't feel like it. That, you know, is an adherence to a form of religion that doesn't give any deference to the codes of religion, and, and even the Torah itself, the writings of, of God's word, they don't follow it. And you can see this, of course, just by the things that they affirm. Now, uh, they've been ordaining women in, the, in reform Judaism since the 70s, officially doing it. They approve all the uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender stuff that goes on in our society. Matter of fact, you can trace some of reform Judaistic promotion of, of LGBT stuff going all the way back to the 70s, as early as they were officially ordaining women. So they don't give, I mean, you, all you have to do is open up the writings of Moses to find out, well, this ain't acceptable, but if you're going to prefer conscience over the law and knowing what our conscience can approve, which is just about anything in our fallen world, you can understand reform Judaism would not be like you got Christianity and then you got reformed theology. You know, we think of in Christianity, if you know theology, you think, well, that's, those are the hardcore guys, those reformed guys. All they're trying to do is to adapt Judaism to the modern age, which a lot of people in Christianity is doing, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't call those guys reformed. The reformed Jews are just trying to keep up, make sure everybody's happy, but they will seek to maintain a kernel of the tradition. We want something. We want something that makes us seem like we're engaging in something of the traditional Judaism. It is the largest group, as you can imagine, in the United States. Maybe you know some people that call themselves Jews, uh, but they're not observant in that they don't do a lot of the things that you might find if you meet another Jewish person who's going to synagogue and getting their kids bar mitzvahed and all of that. They, you know, you might not find that in, a, in Reform uh, Judaism. Friend, they may offer that in Reform Judaism because that can keep up with our culture. It is part of the kernel of tradition they like to carry on, but these are the liberals. You may know some friends that are conservative Jews, conservative Judaism. This didn't really come to a identifiable group until you had Reform Judaism break away from Orthodox Judaism. In the 19th century, you had a group say, well, listen, this is really bad because we don't even really pay attention at all to the writings of Moses, and no one's cracked the Talmud or the Mishnah open for years. So, I mean, this isn't right. And they said, we need to move away from Reform Judaism, and they did. But they weren't really ready to embrace Orthodox Judaism because that seemed too cumbersome. So this is the, you know, this is the three bears. You know, that's too, too hot, too cold. This is just right. This, for a lot of people, love to settle in here, certainly in different parts of the world, and some in America, because it's the nice middle ground. And there are all kinds of groups, by the way, within this. Reconstruction, Judaistic theology, renewal Judaism. You might find in conservative Judaism, for instance, that there is a, a very interest in being kosher. I want to eat the basic dietary, keep the dietary rules. I want to keep the Sabbath as best I can. And yet, the Sabbath rules in a conservative Judaism would be like, well, you know, the Orthodox Jews, they don't drive because, you know, that's clearly prohibited by the rabbis on the Sabbath. You're not going to drive. Uh, all, that's why they're in a lot of places where there's high density of, of Jews. You've got a lot of different synagogues because it's got to be within walking distance of your home because you're not supposed to drive. Well, conservative Judaism would say, well, you can drive. That's all right. 
So the kinds of things you might find in, in some of the rabbinic codes and, and guidelines, even through the Mishnah and the Talmud, you wouldn't have uh, in a conservative Judaism, at least not uh, strictly enforced. Let's put it that way. One of the problems you'll find in conservative Judaism is that you find a disparity a lot of times between the rabbis and the congregants. In other words, if you sat down with someone who called himself a conservative Judaistic rabbi, he might have a lot more strict adherence to the Torah and to the laws and, and customs and traditions of Judaism that the congregation doesn't have. And that certainly is one of the characteristics that you'll find in this group. So in your minds, you think, okay, there's people that religiously say I'm a religiously practicing Jew. And, 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 uh, and they say, well, you've got to think in your mind, are you an Orthodox Jew with a lot of varieties there? Are you a Reformed Jew? Or are you practicing conservative Judaism? There's those categories that will give you a sense of, of what we're dealing with. There's one more that we should talk about, and that's Jewish mysticism, which has become real popular, particularly in Southern California. Plenty of people that are into it around here. A lot of people that have dabbled in it in Hollywood. Jewish mysticism. This can find its way all the way back to the second century AD, AD mid-200s. If you've been with me, my teaching and, and anybody else's about Gnosticism and the rise of Gnosticism, and I jokingly say, you know, the Gnostics were the guys smoking pot and writing, you know, sequels to the New Testament. You know, it was just strange, kind of weird, bizarre stories. This was happening not just in Christianity, but it was happening in Judaism. And you had writings that came that can trace their origins all the way back to the second century where you have this very non-linear thinking that's involved in their theology. They're very mystical. They, by mystical, I mean they want an experiential encounter with God that doesn't have to add up in my mind. Like you would never find this in the pages of, of, of the scripture. And the closest you get to it is in some apocalyptic texts. Apocalyptic texts. The genres of scripture, you got parabolic, you've got narrative text, you've got all the... Then there's apocalyptic text. When you have a apocalyptic prophecy, we're talking about prophecies where you have all these images, a beast coming out of the sea with one foot on the land, one foot in the sea, or Ezekiel chapter 1. Now I'm in the realm of Judaistic scripture, for instance. The prophet Ezekiel sees the wheel within the wheel and the chariot coming and the, the, the four creatures, the four living creatures that John talks about in the book of Revelation. These are apocalyptic images that are presented in scripture to either talk about something in the divine sphere of God's you know, abode and habitation or something future. Those are the passages that Jewish mystics loved because you could go in there and really you know, turn the black light on and chill out and just read those texts and then write and pontificate and philosophize about life. And, and so that's what they did. The word you know that is associated with this, or I assume you've been exposed to, is the Kabbalah, which is the body of mystic beliefs and the, the body of mystic writings, the kind of the collection of, of things that we would go to and say, well, this is what we believe about God. And if you read them, well, we'll get to the summary in a second. But with the key text, and you can get this on Logos too if you want. Well, I think I even put a screen up, so hold that. You Logos buyers. Uh, the Zohar is the key text on Jewish mysticism. Everyone wants to go back to that collection from the 13th century. Uh, in Spain is where it, it found its origins. A lot of the Jews ended up in Spain. That's another story you don't have time for. But in those ages and inquisitions and you know a lot of that. But the Zohar was a commentary on the Torah not like you'd find in the Midrash, but the commentary in the Torah that we would find, for instance, in Christianity from a group we might call the allegorical 
school of interpretation. That's what they did. They loved to take a look at a passage, and whatever they found in the passage, then we just made big stories up out of the things that were there. Now, we had a really sad season in early Christianity where there were allegorical schools of interpretation where they did that to biblical stories. They would see, for instance, the catch of fish in the Gospels, and, and it would tell how many there was, 163 or 68 or whatever it was. And, of course, they'd build this entire theology after, out of how many fish there were. You know, this is the kind of numerology. These are the kinds of things that came out of allegorical interpretations in Christianity, and it was the same thing going on in the interpretation of the Torah, the Genesis through Deuteronomy. And the Zohar is their key text. Now, what are you going to find in this? What you find in a lot of mysticism, and that is pantheism. This pantheistic view that everything is God, and we are a part of everything. I'm a part of everything, so I'm a part of God. And it's this very uh, self-elevating you know, uh, sense that God does not have that personal edge of accountability, and I'm a, a part of God. And, and the, you know, we, in, in New Age thinking, we talk about the spark of divine within me and the divinity within me. It's the same kind of, of, of trite that we find in a lot of mysticism through the ages and even the New Age stuff. There are sometimes, as you'll find uh, if you follow some of the links I'm going to show you, some Jewish rituals that are involved in Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. But they're always looking for the deeper meaning, and that deeper meaning kind of you can follow your own path of creativity to get there. Now, you can go to the gurus within Kabbalah and within Jewish mysticism and have them kind of lead you down the path. But uh, ultimately, there's such an autonomy in creativity in, in this that it's, it's, um, it borrows from all kinds of things. And that's the last point I want to make about it. It's, you can see Eastern meditation incorporated into this. You can see the belief in reincarnation uh, merged into this. This is what we call in missions uh, syncretism. It takes the beliefs of other religions and just kind of grinds them together into their religion. And that's what you have a lot of Eastern thought that's put into uh, the kind of the, the shell or the skin of, of Judaism. All right. In LA, there's a very popular Kabbalah center. I think it's just what it is. Kabbalahcenter.com spelled the old fashioned way. It's the cool way. And this is where you'll find people like Madonna. You know, you've heard Madonna and the Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. Lindsay Lohan was, was dabbling in this. Britney Spears dabbled in it for a while. Then she was back to a church, friend of mine's church, hanging out there, Christian church. Roseanne Barr has been there. Ashton Kutcher has been a part of this. Demi Moore, Mick Jagger was a part of it until they said, we need you to literally tithe, and he got out. Um, <laughs> Alex Rodriguez has been known to, to, to be a part of this. Rosie O'Donnell, Elizabeth Taylor, Paris Hilton for a while before she went back to explore Roman Catholicism. Her buddy, Nicole Ritchie, uh, Adriana Grande for you young people. Um, a lot of people, this is the, kind of a, the cool thing. And it's cool, of course, because you know uh, Hollywood's not going to embrace religion that's got hard edges. And Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism doesn't. But it's got a flavor of religion, and we like that. Now... Lagos is coming out with, it's not out yet, it's going to be out this month, it says it's going to be out at the end of the month, um, a set, a 15-volume set on the classics of Jewish spirituality. This will include uh, all the early Kabbalah writings, uh, the Zohar um, is, is in this, and that's, you know, again, Lagos is not cheap, I realize. Last week it was. Did any of you get the uh, two translations of the Quran last week? Great. Anyway, you probably aren't rushing out to buy this, because it's really not worth having, but... I mean, you know, I'm not a Lagos rep. You know, I get nothing for having Lagos make money. When you think about Judaism, especially those who are going to take the Torah seriously, you can't open up the book of Leviticus and not see that it's filled with all kinds of sacrifices that I'm supposed to bring. People are going to say, well, wait a minute. 
how can my friend say he's very serious about his Judaism and there's no sacrifices taking place? That's the center of Judaistic worship. So what's with that? I find people stumble over that. I was going to asking around this week, people, what do you think about, you know, Judaism and what, what do you wonder about? A lot of people said this. I just don't, how can they not sacrifice animals? You need to compare what was going on in the Babylonian captivity to what your, you might have a serious religious observant Jew in your circle of friends. Um, and certainly you meet, if, if you travel places, there's a lot of places in New York and overseas, um, you'll meet the very observant Jew. And, and when it comes to their life, it's a lot like the Babylonian exile, which started in 586. Here's a psalm from, from that time, Psalm 137. Psalmist says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Remember I said the Hasidic Jews wear black because they're mourning the, the destruction of the temple. Well, the temple was destroyed by Titus in 70 AD, but here it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586. They're doing the same thing. They're weeping. They're crying. They're, they're harps they used to improvise on and sing songs to. They, they hung them up on, on the willow branches. There are captors required songs of, oh, you play the harp, great, play us something. Our tormentors, mirth with... Uh, mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion, little uh, harp boy. And, and, and the, the answer was, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Now this has been done before. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, we have that period, 70 years in 586, where you couldn't sacrifice. I mean, we talk about this passage all the time, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, when Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Here he is in, in foreign lands, in Persian courts, and he's finding out about the Jews. He wants to know what happened. Someone had escaped from there, who'd survived from the exile. He wanted to ask them about what was going on with them in Jerusalem. And he said, well, the remnant there in the province who had survived in exile are in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these things, Nehemiah said, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, here's a godly man not sacrificing. I mean, the psalmist, godly man, wants to observe the laws of Moses. Can't do it. Why? Because he doesn't have access to Jerusalem. He doesn't have access to the temple. Matter of fact, all this talk of weeping and mourning and the conservative Jews dressing in black in their mourning, maybe we'll start to tie together this place. You know what this is called? The nickname of this wall, the what? Wailing wall. Why are we wailing? Well, because we recognize, and look at them all in their black robes and hats, they recognize they don't have the temple. It is not that they choose not to. It's that they can't. They don't have the temple to function in. Matter of fact, the Wailing Wall, if you see this, you see the Dome of the Rock Mosque there that's on top. And why did I say that was done? Because of the flight that Muhammad claims that he took to Jerusalem, the, the night journey on the back of a donkey um, or a mule. That's right there. As a matter of fact, let me overlay this. And I know it's kind of tiny, but this is the outline of where the Temple Mount is. And I'm sorry, where the Temple would be on the Temple Mount. And do you see the Dome of the Rock Mosque? I know there's some debate that I've heard some people have, but I've researched it. I, this is where the Temple goes. Right? Look at this Star of David down here. Do you see that? That's the Wailing Wall. This is as close as they can get to the Temple Mount where the sacrifices would take place. That's where they mourn the destruction of the temple. And it's not as though they're going, well, you know, forget the sacrifices and forget the priesthood and forget all that. We don't care about it. No, the observant Jew who opens up the, the book of Moses goes, I do care about it, but I'm like Nehemiah. I'm like the psalmist in 127. Psalm 127. I, I can't do it. I'm, I'm mourning. I'm crying. I'm weeping over the loss of the temple. So that 
is a real obstruction, right? I mean, you may, someone blocks your ocean view or whatever, but here, this is the center of their worship and someone's built a, a mosque on top of it so they don't sacrifice. Well, unless, of course, you are a Samaritan. Here are the Samaritan priests. Hmm, Samaritan. Remember the Samaritans? Well, remember the Samaritan. Remember the woman at the well? Samaritan woman. We remember the parable of the good Samaritan. The Samaritans, you remember, take the map here. Jerusalem down here, Galilee up here, Nazareth up here, Jordan River, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee, right in the middle here. You had a big collection of Jews up top in, in the north of Israel. You had a big collection of Jews down south. And you had in the middle the Samaritans at the time of Jesus. Jesus talks often about the Samaritans and a very important part of the interaction Christ has. In that region, why do we have Samaritans and who are they? The Samaritans are the northern tribes of Israel. After we had the split of the nation about the 10th century BC, you had Rehoboam and Jeroboam split off. Jeroboam was the, uh, Rehoboam rather, was the son of Solomon. And Jeroboam, they got in a conflict over several things and primarily how Rehoboam was going to run the nation. And you had a split, two tribes to the south, 10 tribes to the north. Then it was, they intermarried eventually with the Assyrians who destroyed them in 721 AD. The southern tribes got carried away in 586, kept their identity through guys like Nehemiah and came back. Well, you had these, as they called them, half-breed Jews who were no longer Jews. They were worse than Gentiles. And the Jews hated them by the time of Christ because they had lost their identity. They wanted to come back to Jerusalem at one point and worship on the Temple Mount. And they said, no. And so they, would, they, met, they made their own Jerusalem. They, they called it Mount Gerizim. In Samaria, Mount Gerizim was the Temple Mount for them. And they created a worship system there. That's why at the woman at the well, when Jesus is talking with the woman at the well, the whole discussion, after she realizes he's kind of dabbling in my private life here and I don't like that, let's talk theology. You guys down south think Jerusalem's the place you ought to worship. Our forefathers say Mount Gerizim, this is the place we ought to worship. Now tell me where should we worship? Because we have two rival places where our holy site is. Well, the Samaritans have access to that. There's no Dome of the Rock mosque built on Mount Gerizim. So here are the Samaritan priests. They walk down at certain times, particularly the Passover, and they, they get together and have their, guess what? Sacrifices. They pull their animals together. It's a big festivity. They have a huge altar there in the middle of, of the worship that takes place. They bring their animals around. They have even various pits where they're doing uh, various sacrifices, but this is the main altar. So there are sacrifices going on to Jewish people, but they are the Samaritan Jews. And if you ask a, a Jewish person, hey, is, are, what do you think of the Samaritans? It's a lot like what you would get in the first century. They're not Jews, right? They're, they're really not. They have sold out their birthright when they intermarried with the Assyrians way back when, and we just, we're not a part of, we're not going to recognize that. So what about those Southern Jews that are really descendants of Abraham that we would recognize as the observant Orthodox Jews? Well, they're waiting for the temple. They're calling it the third temple, right? You got the first temple that was destroyed in 586. You have the construction of the second temple after the exile. You have a lot of money put into it after the, uh, the Greeks came through and you had Herod put money into it. It was called Herod's temple because it was major remodel. Well, now, of course, they can't wait to build the third temple. They wail and mourn at the wall, the wailing wall, in hopes of reconstructing their temple that isn't going to look like this, by the way. This is the Samaritan's version. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but this is like, oh, yeah. I mean, I could say things I'd regret, but, it, you know, they're like, that's not it. Here's where we're going to do our sacrifices. I pulled this off of the Temple Institute website. 
If you go to Israel with us, you'll see the menorah here that's already to specs for the temple that's there. And this is off their website, which has a splash page. This is what the third temple will look like. So they want to build it. If you go inside the temple, here's an Orthodox Jewish boy. I wonder if in his lifetime he will see the model as it's there in the Temple Institute built in his, in his day. That's what he wants. That's what the family wants. That's what conservative and certainly Orthodox Judaism wants. So how can biblical Jews not sacrifice? Well, they're not happy about that. It is part of their worship. It's the center of their worship in terms of the ceremonial part of their worship. And yet there's plenty of feasts and fasts. Now let's talk through these. Some of these will be familiar to you because they're in the Bible. Because, of course, the Bible that we use and understand as God's revelation is the one that they use. They've certainly added in their traditions through the Talmud and the Mishnah and other traditions various things on their calendar. But here's the basics. Let's walk through this. Number one that should be of you know very familiar interest to you is the Passover. Passover goes together with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's in the March-April time frame. It's in the spring. And uh, as you know, Jesus was sacrificed there at the time of the Passover. That's why we have our Easter in the spring because it always coincides with the Passover. And it floats around because we're following the Jewish calendar, which is a lunar calendar, which has to get adjusted every uh, few years. And we have that crazy Easter schedule and the weird question that we ask, when is Easter this year? Because it's never the same time. It's in the spring, Passover. Exodus 12, if you're taking notes, you should know that's where it is. We quoted from it. We quoted from the latter part of that. It was one of the pilgrimage feasts where you had to go to Jerusalem in the Old Testament. You had access and you could travel there. You, would, you were required to and expected to. So the Passover, and what did that commemorate? The passing over of the angel of death in Egypt where the firstborn was not killed if the blood was on the doorpost. I preached on this. If you go back, if you want to hear a sermon, on a Good Friday, we talked about uh, this in some dramatic detail. Of course, you know about the Passover, but the Feast of First Fruits. That's the next one. And again, this one is in the Bible. Um, you'll see it in the text of Scripture. Uh, Deuteronomy 16, book of Leviticus, explains the Feast of the First Fruits. Shabbat, Shabbat in Hebrew. The Feast of the First Fruits is a celebration, as the name would suggest, of God's provision. But if you talk to a modern uh, observant Orthodox Jew, they would say, well, what we celebrate today in the Feast of the First Fruits is not only God's provision, you know, which of course is much different in an uh, urban society or a suburban society than an agrarian society, but it's become a commemoration of God's law, of God's giving of revelation. Matter of fact, modern Jews will say we celebrate on the Feast of First Fruits God's revelation as a gift to mankind. So they celebrate the Torah as uh, part of the major things that goes on in modern Judaism today. Pentecost, Pentecost, which of course means 50 because it takes place 50 days after Passover, but they counted off seven weeks, so it's also called in the Bible the Feast of Weeks, and certainly modern Jews will call it that as well. The Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost, another pilgrimage to Jerusalem, by the way, when the temple was there in the Old Testament at least. And that was a celebration of harvest, right? We were celebrating the end of the harvest, May, June. What you won't find in the Bible is the fast that takes place in the July-August time frame, uh, which is called the destruction of the temple. Um, Tisha B'Vah, the, the, not the celebration, but the commemoration of the, of the destruction of the temple. Which, interestingly enough, in 586 and in AD 70, um, it's believed it took place in the same, same time, even some say the same day. And so they mourn, they fast, and they commemorate the destruction of the temple. Then there is the new year. Um, in Hebrew, Rosh Hashanah. Rosh in Hebrew is head. We say Rosh, Rosh, um, Shoshana, the year, the head of the year. 
is what Rosh Hashanah means. And it's a celebration of the new year, but it's also, if you talk to a modern Jew, they all talk a lot at the Rosh Hashanah celebration of the birth of the world. They celebrate God making something out of nothing. The reason we have something instead of nothing is because God chose to create, and it is the celebration in Judaism that takes place at Rosh Hashanah, the new year. There's the Day of Atonement, which is another fast day. So if you're an observant Jew, you're going to fast on the destruction of the Temple commemoration. You're going to fast in September time frame, um, September, October, the Day of Atonement, which in Hebrew, you've heard the Hebrew phrase, Yom Kippur. Yom means day, Kippur, atonement, the Day of Atonement. That was the day, of course, when the um, priest would enter into the Holy of Holies once a year on one day. It would take place on the Day of Yom Kippur in the center chamber where the Ark of the Covenant was. Got the Feast of Tabernacles, another one you'll know from the Bible. You know, so far, six out of seven of these from, from Scripture. It takes place also in the September-October time frame, just after the Day of Atonement. And the Feast of Tabernacles, I preached on that recently. Remember the sermon I did called um, Old School Christmas uh, last year? It was a sermon from Leviticus 23 on the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths or Sukkot is the Hebrew word. And it commemorates, why did we, why did they camp? It was a camping event, as I said, as I preached on it, because we were commemorating the wilderness wanderings, God's provision for us in the wilderness. So you camp in tents. And today it's, you know, even down the street at Temple Bethel, if you go by it at Feast of Tabernacles, they put up their little huts out on the basketball court, which is kind of cool with all their palm branches and stuff. And again, they're supposed to teach the kids and remind them of the uh, provision of God in the, in the wilderness. There's Hanukkah. I put Hanukkah up there because that we're more familiar with in our culture, but it's literally known as uh, the Feast of Dedication, um, the Feast of Dedication. And though it's not prescripted in the Old Testament, it was celebrated in the New Testament by Christ, you might remember, and I preached this back in 2011. If you haven't heard this one, I think I did it on Christmas Eve. I called it uh, Jesus Lights Up the World, or Jesus the Light of the World, rather, and I wrote down the number on this one because I thought it was worth knowing. If you don't know much about the Maccabean Revolt, and if you don't know much about Hanukkah and its biblical underpinnings, and I say that because Jesus celebrates it in the wintertime, it's in the November-December time frame, uh, I think you should listen to that message. It'd be better to view it. I, I'm sure we have the video of it, which is a lot of slides when I talk about Judas Maccabeus and all of that. That's Sermon 11-38, 11-38, if you want to look that up. You can always get that at pastormike.com, search all sermons on the right-hand side and throw that in, or go to the focal point site. One more that we'll see that was celebrated that comes from Esther chapter 9, which is Purim. My wife has preached on this one, I think, not too long ago uh, for the women's ministry, which, of course, celebrated the failed plot against the Jews by Haman and how Esther and Mordecai, Esther in particular, delivered the people. So in the Jewish calendar, you got the Passover, Feast of First Fruits, uh, Pentecost, destruction of the temple, fast day, New Year celebration, Day of Atonement, another fast day, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Hanukkah, celebrating the recapturing of the temple by Judas Maccabeus which took place on December 25th, by the way, or initially, floats around on the lunar calendar, and Purim, which takes place in the spring, early spring, uh, February, March. Those are the feasts and fasts. You're familiar with most of those, right? All right. Let's talk about some of the practices and customs. This might be helpful because a lot of these come from outside of the Bible. This one doesn't, of course, and that's the Sabbath. And we're going to talk a lot more about the Sabbath when I talk about seven-day Adventism down the road. And we'll get into some detail about why we don't uh, keep the Sabbath. But of course, Jews keep the Sabbath as a sign of the covenant between them and their God. And so there is that picture in the Old Testament of keeping this regular covenantal expression, the ceremony. 
It's the one ceremony in the Ten Commandments. A lot of people say, well, the Ten Commandments, those are the ten big ones. Well, they were the ten big ones, but there was one ceremonial law in the middle of it, which was the ceremony that was to be kept between the Jewish people and um, their God as an act of covenant. And yet, we go all the way back to the beginning of creation, and we see the six-day work, seventh-day rest. And that's not ceremony. That, according to the Torah, is a pattern for work and rest. God adds a layer of ceremony to it. He takes the layer of ceremony off and leaves us with the pattern of work and rest. So Christians should have a pattern of, of work and rest and you should get rest at least one uh, day a week. That would be good. Um, Sabbath. I took a picture here, took a picture. I grabbed a picture off the internet of the old city of Jerusalem on Sabbath evening. Of course, it starts at sundown and that's how the calendar works in a lot of ancient calendars. It's sundown to sundown. So on Friday night when the sun goes down, you know, you talk about the streets rolling up. Here's this very busy, bustling area that all of a sudden, in the Jewish quarter, you have uh, nobody out. And it's funny because the next day on Saturday, and if you're spending time there over the weekend in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, which we normally do, and I'm sure this year, I think we're going back to Israel. Um, if you go with us, we'll probably be in Jerusalem over Saturday. And what's fun is everything's dead, everything's quiet, and then sun goes down on Saturday night and all the shops open up and the coffee shops and everything gets rolling again. Um, most people will keep the Sabbath, whether they're certainly over there, whether you're, you know, moderate, uh, reform, whether you're conservative or orthodox. It's, it's certainly the expression of their culture, the Sabbath. More on the Sabbath down the road in the weeks to come. Let's talk a little bit about the Star of David. Magin David is the, uh, is, is, the, is the word for it. Magin is, um, again, is uh, the, the shield, the shield of David, literally in Hebrew, the shield of David. Um, the earliest use I put here up on the screen that we know of, or that I know of at least, and, and you may have some older usages of it, and I do have dictionaries on this, and I should have looked this up. You can only make so many shapes, right? And so it may be found, but in terms of its association with Judaism, this is the earliest, and this comes from the Leningrad Codex, which is an amazing codex, which I've seen copies of. I haven't seen the original. Uh, maybe some guys have, Pastor Pete may have, but um, I don't even remember where it's at right now. But uh, it, the Masoretic text of the ten, uh, 11th century into the 10th century, 1008, I think is the exact date for the finishing of the Leningrad Codex. This is the artwork on it. Now that's going back a thousand years. And when you have this decorating the Bible, um, of course, you know also its history through the Holocaust. It was one of the things that was used as the patch um, to show and identify the Jews uh, in Europe and in, in Germany in particular. And of course, today it's... It's emblazoned on, on the flag of Israel. So the Star of David, the Shield of David, that's what they call it. Its history goes all the way back that we know of and probably earlier, but the least, earliest extant copy, existing copy we have in association with Judaism as a representation of Judaism is to the uh, early 11th century A.D. The skull cap, kapah, or in Yiddish, the yamaka, the little skull cap, which is convenient if you have a bald spot. It just goes perfectly right there and cover, covers that up. Um, this is extra biblical, of course. We don't have this in um, the Bible, but it is something that's one of the most identifiable connections of people to Judaism as an external thing. Um, men wear them. It was probably coming from an, an Eastern habit or custom of putting on something over your head when you were in the presence of royalty. At least that's the explanation I've heard Jews give, is that this was a sign that I'm in the presence of greatness. And of course, God is the God who's great. He's the king of kings and he's everywhere. He's the omnipresent king. So you wear the skull cap, uh, the kippah, always. Um, and of course, kids have them in all different styles. You get your favorite MLB baseball team on the top. 
Um, I mean, there's all different, all different styles. Let's talk about these. I'm sure you've seen these. Go to New York, you'll see them. Go to L.A., even uh, the fringes, tzadzit, the fringes along the side of your shirt. Now, this comes from Numbers 15. You might want to jot that down. Numbers 15, 38, and 39. This has a biblical origins. The skull cap, the yarmulke does not. But this one says, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations. Okay? So you're supposed to put these tassels on. And you'll find a blue cord on them too because it says, and put a blue cord on the tassels of each corner and it shall be a tassel for you to look at. Now here's what God wanted, to remember all the commandments of the Lord and to do them and to not follow after your own heart. The mystics should take note of that passage. And your own eyes, which, you're inclined, which you are inclined to, in the ESV translates it this way, to whore after. So don't whore after your own heart's desire or what you see. Instead, let these tassels dangle around on your thighs and remind you of the commands of God. That's the picture that we're supposed to have of the fringes if I'm practicing Judaism. Then, of course, there's the prayer shawl. You've seen these. If you've been to the Wailing Wall, if you've been to certain places in uh, synagogues today, you'll see the prayer shawl, the talit, the prayer shawl. Men are supposed to wear this. It's a wide scarf. It was one of the reasons... Uh, at least it was believed to be one of the reasons that people put them on because of a passage in Deuteronomy 22, verse 12, that d- describes the four corners of, of, of a garment that you wear. Deuteronomy 22:12 says, you shall make for yourself tassels on the four corners of the garments with which you cover yourselves. The talit is to be worn um, in prayer, the custom is, but it's usually these knotted fringes from the corners that hang from your garments that are supposed to be reminders of, again, God's commandments. Wearable scripture boxes, for lack of a better understandable American description. Tefalin, the tefalin. The scripture boxes that you'll see on this man, if you look closely, it's on his left bicep and on his forehead. You see the square boxes there? They will put scripture there of uh, the Shema, which is the Hebrew word that starts the prayer there in Deuteronomy 6. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Hero Israel, Shema in Hebrew. Um, they'll put that scripture in there. Uh, and there's other scriptures as well they often add, but that's the primary one. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18, which I don't think was meant to be taken as literally as it's taken in the wearing of the scripture boxes. But it says, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and it, sh- and it shall be as frontals between your eyes. So they get the idea of putting it there from that passage in Deuteronomy 11:18, and they actually put the scripture in boxes there, which I'm saying doesn't do you a lot of good. The point, I think, and to put them on your hands, is not just to wrap the straps, which they wrap several times. They have a number they're supposed to wrap. I forget the number of times you could count them, I suppose, on his arm. And, uh, but I think it's, you know, the, the Scripture should govern what I look at. The Scripture should govern what I touch, what I do. I mean, the passage, the phrase in front of it, I, they're in my heart. They're in my soul. They're bound to my hands. They're bound to my eyes. That's the idea. And yet, this is the custom and how they, they express it in modern Judaism today. Mezuzah, you've seen this, the doorway-mounted scripture boxes. Have you seen them mounted at an angle? <laughs> Which, according to Jews, they'll tell you that rabbis couldn't decide whether to put them horizontally or to put them vertically. So they compromised, then they put them at, a, at an angle. And kind of the old wives' tale is that's supposed to remind you when you go into a home that you're supposed to compromise to get along in your home. Uh, but anyway, and again, they put the... Shema inside that rolled up in a little scroll. You're not supposed to put them, by the way, on the doorway to your bathroom or a closet, but other, other doorways, you'll see them. You go to hotels, you go to restaurants in Jerusalem and some Jewish areas of big cities today, you'll see the mezuzah, the doorway-mounted scripture boxes. 
or a real literal explanation. Of course, very central to Judaism, as you saw there, it was the first piece of equipment they put out in downtown Jerusalem from the Temple Institute, anticipating the third temple being built, is the menorah or the candelabra. Uh, of course, the candelabra we think of, you stick a wax candle in, but remember there was no wax candles back then. What they had is little bowls at the top of this seven-branched menorah. Uh, don't get this confused, by the way, with the Hanukkah menorah. That, that's uh, different. Hanukkah has nine branches, one lighter, eight lamps, but the candelabra of the menorah that was in the temple, uh, that one is seven-branched, seven dishes of, of uh, oil, cruises of oil. Uh, I put this up because this is awesome. I mean, it's not awesome. It's a terrible scene. But if you go to you go to Rome, of course, Rome, Titus became the emperor. But before he became the emperor, he was the commander who went out and led the, the destruction of Jerusalem. So it's a bad thing. But when they came back, this is the relief you'll see on Titus's arch in downtown Rome. And, and the picture is of them, you know, pillaging the the, the treasures, the golden treasures of the temple. So if you go to Rome, you definitely got to see that. I'm sure your tour guide will take you to the Titus Arch, as it's called. But the Titus Arch has this here, which commemorates, celebrates from their view, I suppose, the destruction of, of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But there it is, the gigantic menorah on the back of the Roman soldiers coming home. Here's one. Don't look too closely at this. Circumcision. Circumcision. Circumcision or the covenant of circumcision. I've already referred to it. It, it certainly was something that was done as a reminder to uh, the Jewish people that they are God's people. There's a lot of theories as to why you're cutting foreskin off of people, but we don't, we're not told that in the Bible, but certainly it's to be the sign of the covenant people. Of course, it's done to males, not done to females. That female circumcision that you hear about in Muslim places is mutilation, obviously, and that's, there's, not, there's nothing, there's none of that in, in, in Scripture. This is all uh, eighth day, as the Bible says, uh, you're supposed to circumcise your males. And there's lots of theories about that too. Why is it on the eighth day? The viability, that's probably not it. Some people say uh, you get a full week of God's pattern of the week because there's, no there's no other segment for the week except for God. You realize that. I mean, a month, we got the moon, we got year, we got the sun. You've got astronomical reasons for all these segments of time, but the only thing you have for a seven-day period of a week is God. And so the Jews, I mean, that was a very important number to them, seven. Uh, because God established the week, and we still adhere to that. I mean, I'd like it to be a 10-day week myself, but, but it's seven. Anyway, the point is, some people say that. Some people say it's just so that infant can experience the joy of the Sabbath before they have this. I've, I've heard Jews say that. Anyway, if you want to write down, that comes from Genesis 17. That's where we get it inaugurated, Genesis 17, 10, 10 through 12. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. After you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Uh, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money or a foreigner that is not your offspring, circumcise them on the eighth day. And if you're a proselyte to Judaism, by the way, as an adult, circumcision. Rather have it done on, on the eighth day myself. But, um, of course, very prominent part of Judaism, which may be where your life is intersected with a Jewish friend of yours. You've been invited to their kid's bar mitzvah or their bat mitzvah. Uh, mitzvah, by the way, is command. Bar is son. Bat is daughter. Bar, command, right? Ba, I'm sorry, son of the commandment. Bar mitzvah, the son of the commandment, or bat mitzvah, the, the daughter of the commandment. Which is a very interesting thing, this rite of passage. It's for 13-year-old boys and 12-year-old girls. Uh, boys at 13, uh, girls at 12. They become now, in the community's eyes, at least this is the ceremony of it all, responsible now for their own determined, motivated keeping of, of the law. It's like 
You're, you're, you're a big boy now. Keep the, keep the law of God. You're a son of the commandment. Of course, if you've been to these, and I have, you've got the kid has to learn Hebrew. He has to read from the Torah. They also read from a section of the prophets. They have to learn Hebrew well enough to read it. Uh, they don't have to understand it, but they have to be able to articulate it and read it. And they'd like them to understand it, of course. They get them to understand it as the tutors and the classes and the rabbis help them with it. Uh, it's also follow, followed by the big party, which is probably more well-known in some Jewish families than the actual ceremony. Uh, they carry the scrolls down the way. The girls as well now are a part of it, and they read from the scrolls, the bat and bar mitzvah. How many have been to a bar or bat mitzvah? I have. Not, not as many as that. How many of you haven't? Let's see that. Oh, you need some Jewish friends not going to any bar mitzvahs. Be careful when you go to the bar mitzvah. Messianic expectations. I say that because in the news I was reading, you know, I was looking at bar mitzvahs. Well, I shouldn't even share that. No, I started it now, but the gal, the gal in the news was, was arrested for flashing the boys at a bar mitzvah. Did you read that story? Anybody else? Yeah. I'm thinking, wow. That's why I say be careful when you go to the bar mitzvah, but you didn't know why I said that. But uh, I mean, they're kid parties, but that, that one got R-rated. Messianic expectation. People always ask, well, what did the Jews expect in terms of the Messiah? Well, they expect one. Observant Jews and conservative Jews, they certainly expect the arrival of a Messiah. They expect him to be fully human, not divine, although they have trouble with some passages that we understand now in retrospect because of Christ's divinity. But they expect a literal Messiah. As a matter of fact, they teach much like we teach about the second coming of Christ. They teach the imminent return of the first coming of Christ. And a good Jewish community will teach you to expect it, expect it every day. The Messiah may arrive, a literal uh, Messiah. Also got the Golden Gate up there, and I think of John. All he had was the Old Testament, and he was expecting the, the Messiah, as was all his generation. But when the disciples of John reported all the things that Christ was doing to him, John, you might remember this passage we taught, uh, called to the two disciples, and he sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? That is the mindset of a good observant Jew who knows the Bible. All right. Did you catch that? I, 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 yeah, there's more explaining to do in that passage, but you can. If you wonder how John could not know that, go to that sermon that I preached on that passage. Because a lot of people ask about that. How could John not know? I mean, they were related and their moms and all that. Go listen to that sermon, Acts. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 7, verse 18, 19. We're up to 120 sermons in Luke right now, I just realized, for tomorrow or for this weekend. Yeah, but you don't feel it, right? Tell me you don't feel like it. It doesn't feel that way. I mean, you don't go to, your friends go, don't go to my church. We've been in that book for 120 weeks. Uh, it's only part four in the series, so. All right, you know this if you have Jewish friends. Most Jewish people stubbornly reject Christ. And as I talk about my response to Judaism, I want to make seven observations here as to how we need to respond to, to our Jewish friends. They reject Christ. Listen to this statement from, from Romans chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. Uh, I, I did ask, but Israel didn't understand. I had the offer there of the gospel. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. Right? You're not my nation, but here are all these Gentiles. I'm going to pull them close. With a foolish nation like us, right? I will make you angry. At least we should if we're devoted to Christ enough, to God. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've been shown myself. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary, a stubborn, contrary people. Now, this is the description of God through Paul in the first century regarding most Jewish people. Most Jewish people stubbornly reject Christ, and you find that. I mean, I've witnessed the Jewish people, and you can give them the best Old Testament texts that I think if their Messiah showed up, they'd look at those texts and go, that's it. And then we would say, well, that was it, and I just showed you that's it. That's exactly what Christ did, but they, there's a stubbornness there. 
uh, about rejecting Jesus Christ. And yet, I hope you know this, God is graciously saving a remnant. There are people that are responding well in the same passage, new chapter, but the same section of Scripture, Romans 11. Scripture says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? After all that negative about them obstinately rejecting Christ, Paul says, by no means. (laughs) Think about it, guys. I'm writing you in Rome, but I myself am an Israelite, Paul says, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, which is a statement about love, by the way. He foreloved them, just like Adam knew Eve, his wife. We're talking about some connection, intimacy, relationship. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Now, to get to the punchline, here it is. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So, we even have in our church, right, people that are descended from Abraham that have embraced Jesus Christ and sing songs to Christ with us every weekend and study his word. And, of course, there's a, a gracious remnant that God is saving of the Jewish people. Jews who reject Christ are not saved. They don't have their sins forgiven. Some people really struggle with this. They read the Bible. They're God's chosen people. They're loved. God says, unless the sun goes away and the moon goes away, then, then they won't be my people. So if he loves them and embraces them and accepts them, then they're saved. No, the Bible's very clear. They're not saved. If you reject Christ, it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is, you're not saved. Romans 11, verses 7 through 10. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, and the elect have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Yeah, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear. Down to this very day, as David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. In other words, very poetic way in quoting the scripture to say, these guys are in big trouble. Retribution is coming for them. Paul says it, I could could quote... um, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 10, they're lost. He would love to trade his salvation for the kindred, his Jewish nation, to be saved, but they're not. They're going to be condemned if they reject Christ. So there's a lot of things we embrace about Judaism in terms of we love them, as we'll get to, but we recognize you reject Christ, you're, you're gambling with your eternity. The good news is God's not done with his nation yet. The reason the sun and the moon are reminders to us that God has got a future for Israel is because he promises to turn the nation to himself. Romans chapter 11, the next passage, verses 11 and 12. So I asked, did they stumble in order they might fall? Are they done? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. In other words, they sinned, rejected the Messiah. Then look what we got. A bunch of Gentiles embraced the Jewish Messiah. Why? So as to make Israel jealous. We should be in our intimacy with the God of the Old Testament so close with him. They go, we don't have a relationship with that. Ours is just a bunch of ceremonies. They have the real thing. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, a bunch of Gentiles get saved, and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will will their full inclusion mean? How great will it be when they turn to Christ? That's the promise. There's so much more in that passage, by the way, which you should study. Of course, they're going to be saved one day. That last generation is going to come and turn in mass to Christ. And as I often say, and though many Christians today aren't saying it anymore, we should say it. God's friend should be our, our friend. Romans 11, 28 and 29, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. So at one level, as I sit and as I have dealt with Jewish people that reject the gospel and they, they, they do not receive the Christ that was been given to them, and that makes me mad. That's painful. That's frustrating to me. And they're enemies on that level, spiritually. But as it regards election, what's that? God's promise that the sun won't go away and the moon won't go away. He's got a plan for them. Well, then they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God made a promise to Abraham, and he's going to keep it. For the gifts and the calling are irrevocable. Now, when's it going to come? On that last generation of Israelites. They're going to turn to him. And if they're friends and beloved because of that promise, then they're our friends too. 
Now, I'm of that ilk. There's a lot of Christians today that say Israel doesn't matter at all. They, they, they do matter, and, and I support them. And one of the best things we can do, by the way, is go there and be tourists. I mean, our money uh, in, in that nation for them is, is very helpful, and we go there often. And if you haven't been, I'd love for you to go. How many of you have signed up for the Israel trip? I am. We're up to two buses now, so we can take at least 100 people. How many are going and have never been that are, are signed up or going to sign up? Oh, it's going to be so good for you guys. It'll be great. You will never forget that trip. We should be humble when we consider Israel. It could take a lot of time here, but I won't because we're running out of time. But here's how Paul puts it. If some of the branches were broken off and you, although you were a wild olive shoot, were grafted into this, this tree among the others, and you now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. I mean, we read the Psalms and get nourished by that, do we not? We read the scriptures, we get nourished from the Old Testament. Well, if we've been grafted in and they were the root, well, then don't be arrogant against the branches, and I'm not going to be. I may argue with them about the gospel, but I'm not going to be arrogant. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but it's the root that supports you. They came, their past, what God did with them, led to the reality and blessing of the Messiah for all the nations, and now I've been grafted in. You will say the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. Now, do not become proud, you Gentiles, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Do you think, as we're seeing in America right now, if we do not adhere to God and the God of the gospel, that God's going to say, well, you know, Americans, I really love them. That's fine. I'm going to keep on blessing this nation. Not going to do it. Gentiles need to be careful that we don't get proud, think we have some kind of birthright. We're here. We stand by faith. Stand by faith. Our nation should repent. And uh, we're about to find out what it's like to have that blessing removed. By the way, that whole resurgence of Israel, if you want to jot down some sermons, if you haven't heard my extended take on this, Sermon 10-30, 10-31, and 10-32. That's 2010, Sermon 30, 31, and 32. 10-30. Here's the titles, Modern Israel and Our Jewish Messiah, Looking to the End as a Humble Gentile, and Election and God's Future for Israel. Those are important if you don't know. Maybe you come from a Presbyterian background or you're millennial or whatever. You need to hear my, my view on this. Your pastor, if I'm your pastor, you need to listen to those three sermons. We should not practice Jewish ceremonies. It's almost tempting as I go through these things and you see the biblical connection to the book that we love and the God that we love and we see these things that they do that represent that in a ceremonial way. You go, oh, I want to do some of that. That seems cool. Let's have a Passover Seder. Let's do a bar mitzvah. Let the, well, that one might not be, it's not a biblical one, but I mean, you know, let's do the Passover. Let's do, uh, you know, let, let's, if Jesus celebrated a feast of dedication, let's do that. No, a couple things on this. Colossians chapter 2, verses 15 and, or 16 and 17. Let no one pass judgment on you, Paul says, in questions of food and drink with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. We're not going to eat kosher. We're not going to worship on the Sabbath, right? Don't let anybody pass judgment on them. These were a shadow of the things that were to come. The substance belongs to Christ. See, every day you don't have to dress up in a wedding gown and have your husband walk down the aisle of the hallway in a tux and exchange rings every day. You're already married. Don't do that. You don't need to do that. They're a shadow. The reality is the marriage, you're there. And that's probably not a good illustration. You could talk about things, I don't know, writing letters to one another. You don't need to sit down and write letters to one another if you're right there. You're in the same room, right? Those were things that were anticipatory. Now the reality is here. Hebrews 10.1, same thing. Since the law, and of course in the book of Hebrews, we're not talking about the moral law. We're talking about the ceremonial law of the priesthood, the, the Sabbath day, the festivals. They were a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Now we have the true form. We don't go back to the ceremonies. Galatians 5.2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now that is in contradistinction to Acts chapter 16, 
when Paul takes Timothy and he has him circumcised because of the stumbling block of the synagogue evangelism they were about to do. He's not saying the person can't have the foreskin cut off. That's not the point. The point is you don't do these things in the intention that they had in the Old Testament. Right? He did it for practical matters as he says to the Corinthians, to the Jews I became a Jew as under the law as one under the law, and yet I myself not being under the law but being under the law of Christ. In other words, the rules have changed. We don't need to do these ceremonies. And he says, you start doing the ceremonies the way they were intended, then Christ is of no value to you. First Corinthians 7, 19 through 20. Again, speaking of circumcision, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Listen, no one is an adult becomes a Christian should go, oh, wait a minute, I'm not circumcised, or, oh, I need to have that ceremony, or I should do the Passover Seder, or maybe we should keep the Feast of Booths. No, we don't do those things. They don't mean anything. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Clearly, this is a distinction between the ceremonial laws and the moral laws. What matters is the moral laws of God. Keep those. All right, with one minute to spare, that's all I had for you. Let's pray. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this study and so different than last week it's so almost heartwarming for us to think about the jews in one sense because we know they're really messing with the truth i mean they're they're reading i mean those that are observant are reading the law of moses that speaks of christ they're even anticipating the messiah and god we just know that's uh, that's really playing with fire so to speak and that they i mean they're they're right for the gospel if it were not for that hardened heart that they have so we pray, God, that you might give us more conversions like Peter, James, and John, and Paul, and so many others that we see in the New Testament that were Jewish people that came to love the Messiah and embrace the reality. And God, we want to see more of the remnant saved, and we know one day you're going to save a whole generation of Jewish people, ethnic Jews, religious Jews, observant Jews, probably a lot of cultural Jews as well. They're going to turn to the Messiah, and we look forward to that, God. We hope that it's now, although it's going to happen in a real bad time, a real bad seven-year period, but we're grateful, God, that you have a plan for them and that you're keeping your promise to them. They're enemies of the rights of the gospel, but they're beloved because of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so, God, we, uh, we pray for them. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for, God, all that's going on over there. Keep them safe and prepare them, God, for the coming of Jesus. He'll come the second time for us, and then he'll come back to be their deliverer. And, God, we look forward to that day when they all turn uh, to Christ and the fullness of the Gentiles is, is come in, and now Israel will have its day. And so we look forward to that. Thanks for this study, and I hope it's raised some awareness and filled in some gaps for our people tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.